The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, until recently, I think it's fair to say, proponents of women's rights believed that women should shun domesticity to achieve equality. However, Maggie Andrews, the Professor of Cultural History at the University of Worcester and the author of a new book about the Women's Institute in the UK, said this week that the Women's Institute had benefited from a shift in culture which has made domesticity fashionable again. And she referenced shows like The Great British Bake Off and The Great British uh, Sewing Bee as signs that domesticity was basically fashionable again. Well, here to discuss this are Catherine Layden, baker and cook on TV3's Ireland AM and Carol Holt, columnist with the Sunday Independent. Catherine, I might start with you first. Is domesticity back in fashion? Oh, it's very trendy. Very much so. Very trendy nowadays. I don't know how they're doing it, Shane, but it is. Like, in, in, when, when this feminine movement started, things were completely different. Now I think we're swinging back, but in a different way. There's a far more equal way. Like, way back in, in my early days, certainly, um, the men would never push a pram, um, change nappies, feed a baby. But it's equality now. Men and women mm. are, do, are both doing it. In fact, actually, when you see a couple with a pram now, it's inevitably the man, man pushing is pushing it. it yeah. Now, 40 years ago, that was unheard of. No man would ever push a brand. Not at all. Change a nappy. Make up um, bottles. No. But they're now part of it. Like, if if the partner or wife is working, she wants to go away for the weekend, the men can take over. They couldn't have prior to this feminist movement. Okay, you're you're a baker. Yeah. Um, like, 10 years ago, was that kind of unfashionable? Was that seen as kind of old, a bit old hat, do you think? A little old hat, but it was... You see, back then, Shane, when, when we were at home, you were cooking, you were being economical, you were trying to, you know, use um, use up leftovers and whatever else. The trend is gone from that now. It's trendy now to be making cupcakes or, you know, some... Like, the Great Irish Bake Off had a huge influence on that, I think. Nigella Lawson, Doreen Allen. The domestic goddess yes, and all Rachel that kind of Allen, stuff. That they feel they have to, and they feel they're doing something for their families by baking and by being at home and the smell of cooking in the house. It's like a, an image. Yeah, but now. they're... Um they're getting well paid for it. But women are doing it for their family's sake, Jane. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they feel that homemade is better. They're nurturing their family. Homemade is better than bought. Like prior to the feminist movement, was all bought stuff was the was the best because we were all eating homemade stuff. <laughs> okay, Carol Hunt, uh, columnist with the Sunday Independent. <laughs> Do you agree? Is domesticity kind of back in fashion? Trendy. Oh, well, I hope not. Um, well, well, not for women anyway. I think um, now the, what, what's happened really is that women now are expected to do everything. They're expected to work. They're expected to look fantastic. They're expected, you know, to be Nigel at home and, you know, a superwoman outside and have the cookies baked, um, you know, at the school gate in the morning and then still go off and do another seven hours work. And w- whatever about it, yes, and I'm, it's wonderful that men are contributing hugely, to, I think. Yeah. I, I, I would hugely. I think now might be a bit of an exaggeration. I know they say they are, but they tend. And every single review and survey that you read says that men tend to hugely overestimate the amount of housework or childcare or anything else, and that eighty-five to ninety percent. Yeah, I, I kind of find is it not women, women that do that more now? That oh, I know, so way no, that we just do it and we <laughs> shut up. Um, also Ooh, I don't know about that now. <laughs> also, it's you know when men bake or when men cook. When it's just you know they you know they, they've they've discovered the how to split the atom practically. Whereas with when women do it, it's just <laughs> normal. Um, and uh, this, I mean, my son bakes 
and, and he loves bacon. Well, the younger, my, my, younger men are all bacon. My daughter wouldn't dream of it. You know, she. I, I mean, do you watch? Did, would you have got sucked in by uh, the, the Great British Bake Off? No, but the two men in my life actually love watching cookery programs and yeah. bacon. And my husband, in particular, adores Nigella Lawson books. He was very disappointed though when he actually opened them up and saw they were full of recipes and not actual not pictures, pictures of Nigella. <laughs> you know, with her finger in her mouth, going, "Oh, that tastes lovely." But um, so so now women are expected to do pretty much everything. Yeah, but the only thing, but the trend now as well, you see. Um, the cookery programmes, you have men and women mm. doing it. Like in the old days, it was just women. Mm. The men are true. very yeah. much involved. Um, Kevin is texting to say, what BS she's talking. I fed my me? children in chains nappies since 1982. No, Catherine. Well, uh, maybe you did, Kevin, but... I, it was the exception. Did, yeah. yeah, Catherine yeah. is right. And certainly, certainly, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, men just did not. Not at all. They didn't know how to wash toes. Uh, now most men know how to put on a washing machine. Is there is Carol right though, uh, Catherine? Is there actually is this actually only increasing the pressure on? on I think women? it certainly isn't. I don't know how they do it. Look after children, do the you know the school runs, whatever else, and they're all nearly working full time. They have to nowadays to make ends meet, but they're also doing the yummy mummy bit. Like they feel they have to look the part, going to the school. They have to have the home baking done or the cupcakes done for the cake sales. Like it is huge pressure. But mm. they're, they're doing it. I don't know how they're doing it. Uh, text from a listener says... The wine, in, yes. <laughs> <laughs> With copious amounts of alcohol. Um, <laughs> domesticity is only trendy because it's a status symbol. Is yes, it, actually, that's a very there. good point. Is, it a, is it this a very much a middle class yes. phenomenon? Yes, and also, yes. if you do have, and there is this, this happens in the States, it's increasing a lot that, and, uh, and in the UK, it's a little bit coming around here in Ireland, that if women can afford to stay home, that is a massive status symbol. Oh, huge, that, that if they have a husband... Um, and it's usually the husband um, who can earn enough to keep them at home. That's huge. That's huge status because most women have to work and then they have to try and juggle the childcare and they have to do everything else. So it is it has become a status symbol that they have married a very wealthy man. Or maybe some people just decide to live, uh, live within their means and, and choose to, to stay at home because that's what they want to do. Dead silence from myself and Catherine. They're looking at each other, going, "What? Why would anybody choose to do that?" Well, a lot of women and and, and a lot of men choose to do that. I, I, not a lot I, of men. Some I, men no. do, Shane. All right, yeah. But I think um, when a woman stays at home, unless they're married to an immensely mm. or partner an immensely wealthy man, they have to live frugally if they are staying at home. I mm. think, and 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 they, then they have no power because power everywhere is finance and if you don't have control of finance and if you don't have your own independent finance you have so no you're, power you're and then you women have who no stay at home influence. have no power unfortunately an awful lot of them don't that's why it's so important that we still have um, children allowance is still paid directly um, into a woman's bank account child benefit because for a lot of women that is the only money that they can actually call their own and we, we you know which is why there's so many arguments against it being means tested yeah, but I mean, it's it's quite a statement to say that women who choose to stay at home have no power. I mean, there's a lot so, of women. A who lot of women do, but but there are some that don't. And if they don't have control over their fine finances, they have very very little power. And I think that's why that's why we've no we have no um, universal childcare. While we have so many things that um, uh, uh, mitigate Shocking. against women mm. in society, because the men are the ones that are in power. Because they go out, they make the money. Um, um, women either stay at home or they are on minimum wage or they work part time. Because of course we have no childcare. Yeah. But something else I've noticed as well in recent times with, with shopping, the men and women going shopping, grocery shopping together. But the man holds the purse strings. He's invariably paying at the checkout. 
Is that, well, well, again, is that true? I mean, that's a sweeping, that's a well, fairly sweeping generalisation. Well, yeah. Well, I always think that's a coup, you see, if I can do the shopping and then get him to pay the check at the checkout. Well, he's very <laughs> selective what's happening, what's going into the basket as well, I find. Okay, lots of texts coming through uh, on this. Uh, Paul says, any man that's pushing a pram is emasculated. Women wanted to go to work, let them be at it. They've never been more miserable. Yeah, oh, good night, right. Josephine. What's um, he talking Peter about? Peter says, my wife and all her friends are professional women and they couldn't boil water. Uh, Brian in Dublin, <laughs> uh, some fairly provocative text yeah. here. Now. Yeah. Uh, your contributor is incredibly sexist. I don't know if he's referring to Catherine I, or Carol. Probably me. <laughs> and I take great offence to it. If a man spoke like that about women, there would be huge outrage, incredible double standards. I think uh, he's having a go at me. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that's about. Is it about the fact that women do all the uh, do all the work and, and then... Well, they do most of it. Now, men are oh, certainly improving. Oh, no, um, definitely And, and men are. are discriminated against in other ways. They have no... Um, and still don't have any paternity leave and they still might not have if the doll takes their holidays um, um, and there's no mention of them in the Constitution. Um, as parents, they are hugely discriminated against Yeah, as but well. I wonder a lot of them if they did have paternity leave, yes. would they take it? Well, that's why I think it has to be made compulsory. I don't think they would. No, because, because their careers huge, suffer. Yeah, they would be under huge social pressure not to take it which is why it has to be compulsory they have parental leave in Sweden and don't they call it kind of elk hunting hunting season or whatever (laughs) because the men basically take Take parental leave and then go off and go hunting hunting now, I don't, again, I don't know how true that is. Yeah, and that's yeah. a uh, Steve in Kilkenny says, I'm very content to stay at home and be a domestic god. Fair good for you, Steve. Yeah. Uh, another listener, Granton uh, Scaries says, I find your guests offensive. Stereotypes that just make sweeping oh, statements. Oh, we're all in trouble now, Karen. Was out of the house when I was 17 and could fend for myself. Um, like... Domesticity, domesticity, it's such a hard word to say, actually, mm-hmm. Carol. I mean, it is still, it's a chore, isn't it? I mean, the baking <sighs> stuff is the kind of, the glamour end of it, isn't it? great fun. Yeah. And cooking, I like cooking. It's the mm-hmm. housework because it just goes on and on and on. It's never finished and nobody notices that you do it, you know? The housework, the oh. laundry, the ironing, the, oh. you know, yeah. And it's the same beds, the following changing. day. And there's no, it's like anything that women tend to do more of, like caring, housework, cleaning, any of those sort of jobs. There's but I really very think, Carl, a lot more men are doing it. I really think they are. They have to because they're the, both The working. burden still falls on women. Yeah. It does fall on it does, but they still, I still think they're a lot better than they were years ago. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? You're, one of your colleagues in the Sunday Independent got into kind of, well, a bit of controversy and she, she returned to it. Yeah, Neve, Neve Horn in, in the Sunday Independent with her, with her, with her argument that basically women can't have it all. You can't, you can't have it all, certainly not at the same time. Anyway, you cannot. Um, and I found that out. I mean, when, when I got married first, it was like, right, you know, 50-50, everything 50-50. Once the yeah. children arrive, all of that goes because women, they, you, you know, you're the one that has the child, you're the one that's supposed to care for the child, there's no paternity leave for men and women are expected, basically, to, to, to do the life. Oh, sorry, there is paternity leave for men. You, there's no there paid is. paternity leave. There's, no, it's not no, paid, no, but you, you can, no, you can you, take on. Not, not if you're running your own business, not if you have to pay bills. Not You can't. You really can't. No, you can't. It, really. It's just not feasible um, in this country. I, took, I took paternity leave. Well, I you took were very pay. lucky. I think my uh, my husband took about an hour off. <laughs> 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 anyway, but any, but, but um, so, so that's the way it works out. Okay. Um, Martin and Light, a lot of, lot of texts coming in criticising both of you. These two sound very anti-women, let oh, alone oh anti-men. No way. Goodness. Okay. Um, will it ever change? Will we ever get to a point where where women and men split these things halfway down well, the I middle? Think again, I think slowly, yeah, we are surely. slowly. We are I think, again, there, it yeah. starts right at the beginning. Yeah. If we can have compulsory paternity leave, get men involved in childcare and everything at the beginning with equal responsibilities um, uh, and equal privileges as well. Yes. Um, yeah. So that it's, it's both um, well, in, the running, in the rearing of a family. Yeah. The at the moment, there's a lot of pressure on men to be the breadwinner. Yeah. 
just just to close, is there a danger that this kind of, uh, I suppose, glamour glamorization of domesticity that we see, uh, you know, in various cooking programs and the Great British Bake Off? Does that actually result in more work for... And does it reinforce the, the Stereotype. gender stereotypes? Oh, um, I think it does, ex- except yeah. I think you can look at it and go, look, that's television, that's glamour, that's got as much to do as what happens at home, you know, as any sort of Hollywood movie does. Yeah, but at home as well, you see, they're now introducing the children to, to mm-hmm. cooking and baking that, that they are the generation before probably missed out on. No, I think it's... Um, it's we're getting there, I think, slowly but surely. Whatever the, whatever the listeners are saying, we're getting there. <laughs> Slowly, rather than surely, I suspect. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Catherine Layden and oh, to uh, Carol Hunt. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, welcome back to The Right Hook. Shane Coleman standing in for George today. Now, if you're listening to George yesterday, you would have heard him talk to the Professor of European Studies at Oxford, Timothy Garton Ash, author of Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected Age. They were discussing the topic of why, as he said, Jesus would be banned from most UK universities today or from, banned from speaking at them. Now, after that conversation, we were con- uh, contacted by Tom Curran, you know him well, the, the partner of uh, Mary Fleming, uh, the Right to Die campaigner. Now, Tom says he was refused by Oxford the right to speak after being initially invited because of wanting to speak on the right to die. Uh, Tom joins us now in studio. Tom, you're very welcome. Thank to you very much. Yep. Just give us the background to this. Well, I've, I've spoken at quite a few universities in the, in the UK, including Cambridge, uh, twice at Cambridge, and an invitation came from Oxford, from the Oxford Union, to speak to them about, about the issue of, of the right to die. Uh, and that was fine. I accepted the invitation. But about a week before the, the event was to happen, I made contact with them to, to, to establish the travel arrangements and things like that. And they told me that my invitation had been withdrawn. Now, did, did they give you any reason for they that? They didn't give a specific reason. I asked them why and they, they hemmed and hawed, but they didn't give a specific reason. But it's more than coincidental that the only two people that I'm aware of that in the last 10 years that have had invitations withdrawn by the Oxford Union, and myself and Philip Nischke, the guy that does exactly the same as I do for advocating the right of people to determine their own fate. Okay, I, I looked back into the, uh, the the time that that Philip, and you're absolutely right, he yes. was refused. There, there were a couple, there were two others who were denied oh, the right okay. to speak, um, uh, John Tyndall and, and David Irving, for for very very different reasons. Yes. The argument that uh, the Oxford Union, and we will get back to you in a moment because right. I, I'm very curious about this. The argument the Oxford Union put forward in relation to Philip was they said that other people speaking in favour of assisted suicide at the time had said they didn't want to share a platform. That is, that is exactly the similar situation to myself. The, the, the organisations that exist in the UK are very much law reform organisations, whereas both Philip and I were part of the same organisation, Exit International. We advocate that people have a right to determine their own fate and that they, in doing that, that they have a right to put plans in place, just like Mary and I put for, put in place for herself, that people have a right to do that. And we also have a situation where we provide information on how to do that. The, the right-wing uh, group in the UK, who are, as I say, law reformers, refuse to share platforms with us. So, sorry, I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand the difference between what you're... Because you're... you're, you're 
I mean, you're coming from the same place. Is, yes. is that fair to say? Yes. But yes. so it's it's about how it's about the means to achieve that. Is that the, the difference? The difference is that while we are law reformers as well, we know that there are people such as Mary that exist in now and they can't wait for the law to be and they can't wait for the law to be changed. So we promote or we promote the idea that they should have the right to put plans in place for themselves. And is there well, beef with you that are they saying, you know, you're 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 breaking the law and we can't go along with that? Exactly, yes. Yes. So they they, ref, they refused to sit on platforms with us and they obviously had enough influence. They tried the same thing in Cambridge, uh, but Cambridge refused to to or to bow to their needs or what are their wants. But Oxford didn't and, and it's it's a more than a coincidence that both Philip and I had exactly the same situation in, in within a period of about two years. It is extraordinary because look, you can you can agree or disagree with where you're coming from, and I you know I think a lot of people find it a very difficult and, and you know they'd be very personally sympathetic to you, but they'd find it a troubling issue. But the idea that you know that, that people would be afraid to hear what you have to say on the topic is frankly baffling. But the place to disagree with that is in a debate, mm. is across a table. But if they don't give us the opportunity to put our our views forward, then. We can't have that. We, you know, we can't debate with them. Yeah, and, and this is the case. They just refuse to sit on the same. We're technically we're on the same side. We have the same aim, which is to allow people to determine their own fate. But but they seem to think that we, uh, because a lot of the people that we're involved with have to break the law to put their plans in place, they feel that that is harming their cause. The Oxford Union at the time that that uh, your, your colleague Philip uh, Nitschke was um, was refused. They were their, their argument at the time was, look, we needed to make sure there was balance uh, in the debate. But it strikes me that if you're if you're taking away, ha- uh, you know, fifty percent of 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 the uh, of the advocates for this, yes. um, that you're you're not really getting that that balance. Well, into that's the it. You're, you're taking that balance away uh, and and restricting the, the the I suppose the conversation. To people who are very middle of the road, uh, is there a is there a real bitterness between uh, what you're advocating and what those other people who, as I say, you're both coming from the same place, but they 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 are that they're pro law reform and solely pro law reform. Is there? I mean, is there bitterness then between those? Well, the, two the only place that this seems to take place is in the UK. We we work hand in hand with people in Holland, people in France, people in Germany, and agree to disagree and, and agree, on the means. Yes, we we have different methods. Uh, or different means to the same end, if that's the way to put it. And we feel that there are people now that need help and can't wait for the law to be changed. And people like that are approaching us every day of the week. Uh, but they feel that, that that's not the way to go about it. Those people can die in pain if, w- without the absence of the law or without yeah, it just, the law uh, change. Yeah. It, it is a worrying trend, though, isn't it, this idea? Now, look, we've seen it. We, we've seen other very high-profile, very different issues. You know, we've seen right-wing speakers at, say, the Oxford Union and, and people protesting and arguing. Mm. I think you had, um, was it Nick Griffin? I think, effectively, he was stopped from speaking, I think, is yes, my recollection. Yes, he was shouted down, yes. Um, I mean, what's, what's your take on that? I mean, do, do you think, look, I, I might be appalled by what he has to say, but he is, is free speed absolute, I suppose, is the question I'm asking. Well, when people incite other people to, to harm other people against their will, then I think that that's a line needs to be drawn on that. But that's not the case in our particular situation. We're talking about people who have a free choice, who make up their own mind, and we, we're there to help those. Uh, and, and that's a totally different situation. You were listening to the uh, the talk yesterday between George and, and Timothy Gar- Garton-Ash. It's an interesting um, 
uh, idea that he had that that Jesus, yes. if if he, if he were alive today, wouldn't be allowed to speak at at, at universities. Yeah, well, it, and I think the implication was that it would have to be very extreme for someone not to are to be refused permission. Whereas in our case, we were both invited, and that invitation was taken away. And I don't regard our stance that we take on the right to die as extreme at all. Um, you, you don't expect to hear back from any any more back from the Oxford Union at this no, stage. No, that, that was that was quite some time ago. Yes. Okay. So as far as the, you're 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 blacklisted effectively. Oh, I don't know to be perfectly honest. But if if they are not prepared to let us speak, uh, I've I've no idea whether it was the union themselves ultimately made the decision or whether it was the university. But I know that certainly when I when I spoke in Cambridge, there were some very very influential people on the opposite side. I mean, I in fact I was the only person on the panel on both sides that didn't have a title. So it's that level of, of person who would have a lot of influence and probably ex-Oxford people themselves. Mm. Uh, so I would imagine that the influence was, was put on the, the university, not necessarily on the union, because unions in general, I mean, including Trinity, uh, are, are very open to, to people speaking their mind. Mm. How did the debate go in Cambridge as a matter of interest? We, we, we won overwhelmingly. You, yes. you, you, uh, you won the day. There's always a vote after uh, Yes, after exactly. Well, yeah. well, one of the things in Cambridge that they do as well, which, is, which I've advocated in other debates, is they vote before it and then they vote after it. Oh, so right. they can see a trend and, the, and there was a, a 20% shift in our favour. In, in Cambridge. Having listened to your arguments. Yes. Okay, well look, it's a shame that the uh, the students in Oxford uh, won't get to hear those arguments as I say, whether you agree or disagree with uh, what Tom is saying, it, it beggars belief that uh, you, people wouldn't want to listen to what he had to say. Anyway, Tom Kern, as ever, uh, thanks indeed for coming into us. Back in Thank a you. moment on The Right Hook. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, welcome back to The Right Hook. Now, Donald Trump, is he going to be the next American president? It's a question we're all asking at the moment. One man who thinks he not only can be, but perhaps will be, is Professor Andrew McLeod from King's College London. He joins us on the line now. Good afternoon, Professor. Good afternoon. Tell us why you think he will win the presidency. Well, I need to clarify first the difference between what he will do and what I want him to do are two different things. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, uh, I'm not a Trump supporter by any means. Okay. But in the United States, a mistake is often made where you compare a Republican candidate with a Democrat candidate and try and figure out who's going to win. I say that's erroneous because the key factor about winning or losing U.S. elections is whether you get out the vote. So the most important comparison is not comparing a Democrat with a Republican. It's comparing a Democrat with the previous Democrat and asking whether they'll get more or less votes and comparing the Republican with the previous Republican and ask if they will get more or less votes. Because you win the U.S. election not by stealing the other side's votes, but by getting your own team out to vote. And if you take that analysis and compare Hillary Clinton with Barack Obama and ask, will Clinton get more votes this time than Obama did last time? And I would say no, because Obama still got the hope, the first black man in the presidency, the incumbency, and a lot of people happy with his presidency. So he got a lot of Democrats out to vote. And I think Clinton will get less votes than Barack Obama did. And then you compare Trump with Mitt Romney. Romney was one of the most boring candidates you've had for a while. And Trump has shown that he's getting out a lot of first time voters that have never voted before. So Trump will get more voters than Mitt Romney. So if you start to say Clinton will get less than Obama and Trump will get more than Romney, suddenly you have Clinton um, 
in danger of losing. But then you look at the type of people that Trump is getting out and the response by the Democratic Party. Trump is plugging into a disaffectedness within the rust belt of the United States. Angry white men. Uh, and they are coming out to vote and support Trump. And the Democrats, instead of responding to this, they are saying, oh, Trump's an idiot. People will wake up. They won't ultimately vote for him. Yes, they will, because there's something in the United States right now that makes people very, very angry. And Trump is an outlet for that anger. Okay, I suppose first question, obvious question. Is there enough angry white men, though, to get him over the line? Or will his comments in relation to various other ethnic groups in the US mean that they'll all go out and vote against him? And ultimately, there isn't a big enough white vote to get him to the White House. Well, the problem is, if you look at who these minorities are, they largely vote Democrat anyway. The black and Hispanic communities vote massively towards the Democrats. In other words, there aren't many Republican votes to lose in the Hispanic and the Democrat community. And a surprising number of of Hispanics are supporting the Republican Party anyway. And while people say Trump has got a clear female problem, if you look at the polling of Clinton amongst males, Clinton has a male problem. But Clinton also has a female problem. And if you look at women under the age of 30 that have been voting in the Democrat caucuses, over 75% of them have voted for Bernie Sanders. So Clinton is not resonating amongst the female community and has a problem with male voters. And yes, Trump has a problem with female voters, but are there enough angry white men and disaffected females and residual Hispanics and blacks that will vote for Donald Trump? Yes, there are. And he could win. What about the disaffected Republicans, those Republicans who are saying, this guy is a clown, he's dangerous, I'm not going to vote for him, even though I always vote Republican, not this time? Well, I'll go back to 2008, when the majority of Clinton supporters in the Democrat caucuses said there's no way known they would vote for Obama. They'll go and vote for McCain. That's what they said during the primary process. What did they do on election day? They went out and voted for Barack Obama. And a lot of these disaffected Republicans were saying, I'll never vote for Trump. But guess what? They're all starting to move over towards Trump because a lot of people forget it's not just the US president that's elected in November. It's many House seats. It's many Senate seats. It's many governors. It's a lot of municipal positions that are voted for in the United States, right down to used to be dog catcher, but not anymore. And so all these people will be going out to vote for all these other positions and find themselves voting for the president as well. And what are they going to do? Decide not to vote, vote Democrat or vote Republican. Mm. And if history is any guide, these people, while they are there, will still vote Republican because they might not like Trump. But for some reason, the Republicans really hate the Clinton family. And my message to people of the left in the United States is stop underestimating Trump. If you underestimate him, you will not tackle the root disaffection that's causing the support for him. You'll call it stupid or you'll call them nitwits. But in the end of the day, the stupid nitwits who vote for Trump, vote. I don't know if you read Andrew Sullivan's piece in, in New York magazine on Trump. And, and he was making some of the same arguments you're making now and talking about the kind of the mass movement and how politics across the world had changed and the kind of vanishing authority of the US political and media elites. 
do you agree with that? Do you think that the that the like compared to say Barry Goldwater in '64, that the, the the time just wasn't right? You know that the famous slogan in your guts, you know he's nuts. Um, that that that. The timing for Trump is perfect, the way politics has gone, not just in America, but across uh, the world. And that kind of demagogue can win today. Across the world, something is happening in Western democracies at the moment. And there are a lot of disaffected people. Maybe this is an aftermath of the financial crisis. Maybe it is a feeling of disconnection with elites. And people are wanting something else. It's Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom. It was Tony Abbott in Australia. It is Donald Trump in the United States. And I think there is a real question for, you know, the traditional party leaders to say, why are the populations moving away from us at the moment? Why are people disaffected? And this is my message to the Democrats. Stop rejecting the message that's being passed to you. The message that's being passed is we're not happy with the status quo. Why is that? And I think that's going to be different in every country, but it's a similar thing going through most Western democracies at the moment. There is a lack of confidence that the representative democratic system is representing the people. That's the macro picture. Two two other micro arguments against why he, he could win. One is the Electoral College. Uh, that's the way mm. the president is elected. Correct. We know from history, no Republican ever wins the White House without winning Ohio and that he is way behind in Ohio. Is that missing the bigger picture to focus on one state, do you think? Yes, I do. I, I think uh, what will happen in the election in November will be very different to what's happened in previous elections. Trump is appealing to a group of people that have never voted before. And therefore, going and looking on past voting intentions isn't going to uncover what's going to happen this election. I think it'll be a very different Electoral College map this time. Exactly how it will look at the end, I'm not sure. But if the Democrats don't stand up and realise this is a real threat and people won't change their mind, then they're in danger of losing. A general election, though, it has to be said, and I know you won't argue with this, is very different from Mm. a primary contest. And there will be debates which will focus on policy issues and I think in those debates I think the fact that he is up against a woman will make a difference as well I mean the last thing Trump would want to be seen to be doing in terms of appealing to voters is to a perception that he is bullying a, a, a female candidate he will have to adapt his style and Clinton will be, I mean Clinton beat Obama on, on, on you could argue mm. it didn't make much difference but he could struggle in those debates and, and he could struggle in the general election because of that He might, but let me give you an alternative possibility as well. I've watched quite a number of the debates, and I've actually seen Clinton in person twice, and she comes across as a very polished politician, very well-rehearsed words, very well-focused grouped, and very clear political messages coming out. That's exactly what people are rebelling against, whereas there's a authenticity in what Trump is saying. I don't agree with what he is saying, I've got to say, but he comes across as an authentic way. So yes, Trump could very much blow up on the on the debate stage, but so could Clinton, because there's something that Trump is plugged into that Clinton right now doesn't understand. Question, which viewers are going to be watching these debates? And it's really open. We're not sure how it's going to unfold. But the one thing that is clear is past electoral patterns, including the debate patterns, won't apply this time round. 
Is it your contention? I mean, looking at it now, we're a long way off from, mm. from November. But, I mean, you see, you seem to clearly think he is going to win this election. Look, I, I think he will, unless there's a massive change in the discussion coming out of the Democrats. I didn't uh, a snap poll on my Twitter feed, not that it's scientific and not that it's in any way reliable, but my Twitter feed is... Uh, 50,000 people, it's left-leaning and it's internationalist. And you would think that Clinton would hammer home in that. But actually 64% of people said they thought Trump was going to win. That gives you an indication of of the changing tone and feeling that's going on. And every time I hear people of the left standing up and dismissing Trump as foolish or stupid or his followers as foolish or stupid. I remember what I learned in my first day's training as an army officer many, many years ago. Let the enemy underestimate you. And if the enemy underestimates you, you can attack them with and defeat them easily because they won't be prepared. And I see this happening over and over again in the left. They are underestimating Donald Trump. They're underestimating their message. They don't understand what he's plugging into, and therefore they're not combating that. Unless that changes, unless the Democrats realize this threat, then they will not only lose, but lose by a landslide. Okay. I hope you're wrong. I so suspe- do I. I suspect so you're I. right, though. Um, Professor Andrew McLeod, uh, visiting professor at King's College London. Thanks indeed for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Thank you very much.